UK grad school. I'm Kate. I'm Dustin. And we're here today with Kaylin Ratner, and she's going to talk today with us about open science. So thank you so much for joining us, Kaylin. Um, if you want to just do a quick intro about you, where you're coming from, and um, kind of what you're up to now. Yeah, sure. So hi, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Uh, so yes, my name is Dr. Kaylin Ratner. I'm a developmental psychologist and I'm currently working as a postdoctoral associate in the Department of Human Development at Cornell University. Um, my research broadly focuses on how people think about and reconcile their senses of identity, purpose, and meaning in life. And I'm particularly interested in how these things unfold both within the context of psychopathology and then how securing and searching for these senses can, uh, really make us feel better, make us be our best versions of ourselves and can leverage well-being. So right now I am working on a project with uh, New York City's Grip Tape. We're going to be investigating how this program, so what they do in Grip Tape is they uh, give youth um, a small stimulus or a stipend, I should say, to in a 10 week long learning journey, these self-identified passions. And so the youth writes in about whatever it is they're passionate about, whatever they want to learn about, um, and then they support it. That's it. The youth designs everything about the curriculum. They use the funds for whatever they want to, to uh, learn about this topic. And so what we're going to be doing is studying what changes in youth throughout the context of that program. And then apart from that, uh, I'm also working on a lot of research with regard to our new concept of derailment, which is the sense that you've gotten off course in life. And how that relates to things like both depressive symptoms at the subclinical level and soon to be venturing into ideas about uh, clinical thresholds in terms of that and depression. So. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> Are you like doing so? I guess we hadn't talked about this before. So this is kind of newest, new, like maybe we briefly touched on it, but this is new ish information to me. Um, and with the derailment, like, in particularly like with COVID, like have you seen anything initially or not? You haven't analyzed anything yet or? Yeah, no, we haven't analyzed anything yet with regard to COVID, although I do think that there are some really interesting questions. Um, we do have a some survey data back from my dissertation uh, where the final wave was collected like right after uh, the college students I had been surveying for the last four years and tracking, um, right after they went home for virtual instruction. And so in that data set, we do have some stuff with derailment and purpose and identity and also uh, depression and things like perfectionism. And um, yeah, we just haven't analyzed anything of anything relevant to that yet. And so looking forward to, to maybe circling back to that. Uh, I'm definitely a lot more interested in getting some of the, the studies related to my dissertation out the door because <laughs> those are, are done. Um but yeah, it's it's hanging out, it's waiting, but I definitely think like this new world that we're in, this post-COVID world, um, derailment's going to be a really interesting and re relevant question given like what has happened this year. So many things fell to the wayside um, that I it's, it's on the horizon, so... <laughs> That's awesome. And I apologize for not introducing you as Dr. Kaylin Ratner, and especially because it's a recently hard won doctorate. Um, <laughs> You're fine. In our defense, you are only our second doctor to come on to. You can grad school at the first being a week out from his when he finished his uh, dissertation. <laughs> so um, 
he was making such a huge deal of it at the time. Uh, shout out to Dr. Max Holly, friend of the pod, um, frequent <laughs> victim of our bullying. Uh, <laughs> our? My. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't stop it. So I guess it's also on me. Yeah, you're an enabler. Um, but yeah, so we're really excited to have you on. Um, so as far as, you know, I'm going to kind of throw this conversation over to you and Dustin um, as people who have are in the later stages of grad school. But uh, today I kind of want to talk about like, how did you get into open science? And then how you've navigated as an early career researcher, integrating open science into your practices and any challenges along the way. So those we can dive into whatever you want to first between the two of you, because they're all three very loaded, could lead to very long, long conversations about each individual one. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, start wherever you want. I think like my, my, I've only had one study that I haven't done in like more of an open science way. And that was um, because I was, I didn't know what was, what was going on. I didn't know anything about open science at that point. Um, I was just a little, little baby grad student developing and that's a weird image to have (laughs) um yes and then (laughs) after I think it was like in the transition from my first to my second year because I I started at the University of Denver and then uh transferred to the University of Illinois in that transition like Illinois is, is one of the I think it's like one of the very prominent universities in in psychology that is leading this um, or has a lot of faculty members who participate in open science. Um, and that in that transition, that was really what what got me interested and my advisor brought it up during lab meetings and like we were talking more about it. Um, so I think I was a little late. That would have been like 2016. Um, so not not a long time, but ever since it's been mm-hmm. central to what I do. Kaylin, what about you? When did when did you start? Yeah, so I would say, so first of all, um, let me say that uh, before I came to Cornell to start my PhD in developmental psych, I finished a uh, master's degree in clinical psychology at the University of Central Florida. Um, so I started at Cornell in 2015 and then was doing my master's from 2013 to 2015 because it was one after the other. Um, and I had no idea about the replication problems. I had no idea about open science. Um, That was all new to me when I got here and got to Cornell. Um, And I think still really new kind of like within Cornell itself. Um, I think I just so happened, I don't even know if I can say it just so happened because like all first year PhD students have to take like the stats curriculum, right? So uh, I guess I just so happened to, you know, enter this course. Uh, with our fantastic, fantastic quantitative methodology professor, Felix Thomas. And he was super into open science and the things that were emerging at that time in, you know, fall 2015. So a little late in terms of like, you know, the replication crisis kind of hit pretty much like mainstream, like, hey, this is a problem in 2013 with the Nature paper. And so Felix was t- was teaching us things about pre-registration and like what was happening and like uh, questionable research practices. and. So at that point, I was very lucky to be like somewhat productive, even in like my clinical master's program, which was a lot more practice oriented. I was doing research on the side because I, you know, had these PhD intentions. 
And so at that point I had a couple, I had a couple co-author papers that were coming out that obviously like were not open science based just because it was still quite new at that time. But my first experience with open science was <laughs> in fall 2015. Um, we were trying to do this study on uh, the association between a sense of meaning in life and um, autistic features. So these subclinical features that we all walk around with uh, that are just as unique and distinct as like personality traits, right? So like we, we know, I don't know if you all touched on this in the podcast, but that the vast majority, like the vast majority of clinical pathology is on a spectrum. It's dimensional that we all have these like non-zero features. And so autism is no different. Anyway, so we were trying to see, um, uh, there was this paper that came out that suggested that exposure to objective coherence. And in this paper, what they did was um, they showed people uh, pictures of trees and seasonal change. The, the TLDR of this, the too long didn't read, is that people who were exposed to these coherent patterns tended to report higher levels of meaning in life after exposure than individuals who were uh, exposed to incoherent patterns. Um, and so we thought that was cool. And so we wondered how maybe uh, autistic traits would moderate that since we know that there are these perceptual differences in, in, in um, at least the full diagnosis of autism. Um, I don't know, there was maybe something related to like pattern seeing and could that still, you know, produce the effect. Um, and we, so we tried this paradigm a couple different times, like, and before we could even add autistic traits as a factor to the model, uh, it, we, we couldn't get it to work. <laughs> Um, so I took it to, uh, Professor Thomas and thought it was something statistical. And he's like, how do you feel about doing this as a registered report? I said, cool. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it started. Um, so we did a direct replication of that study and we had it published and it was, it was a really awesome experience. Like I, for a first year grad student, I, um, I couldn't have asked for a better, uh, I guess, being pushed into the deep end of like not only thinking about all the contingencies of research, like up front in a register report, but then, gosh, we did like both frequentist and Bayesian statistics for that paper. And like, so it was like, congrats, <laughs> welcome to first year of grad school. <laughs> I was going to say the frequentist versus Bayesian, like very on Brit. I talked a little bit about this class. Uh, I didn't mention Felix's name, but yeah, I, I talked in positive terms about this class, so <laughs> we're cool. Uh, but no, and we do everything with frequentist and Bayesian. <laughs> so wow, what a real world application to the exact thing you were learning about. And let me just say the journal editor, like when we, so a register report has two stages, right? So we have stage one, which is where you submit the proposal and you say, this is what I want to do. This is how I'm going to analyze it. And then it gets vetted just like a typical peer review paper. And then they give you the rubber stamp if they like it, and they agree that they're they're going to accept it in principle if you carry things out to a T, like what you said you were going to do. Mm -hmm. um, so as stage one, it wasn't just Felix that was pushing for Bayesian statistics. The editor requested us to do it both ways. Wow. And so I was like, funny, I just learned what this thing was. <laughs> I was just going to say, like, I, I think, you know, we kind of do a disservice. Like, I know it's uh, Felix is like, it's his jam to introduce everyone to Bayesian statistics. That was a really nerdy way to say that. Um, but like, Representative. I, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but like, I also like, I see so many more, like my obsession with 538 is evident throughout this podcast. Um, but 
I like when they talk about model talk and they talk about priors and then like it just theoretically and as it applies to open science basing is just like really nice and it just kind of conceptually like really even if the stats work out to be basically the same it's just like a really nice way to pull it together and think about statistics and so I think that's really fantastic. Yeah the the way things are going I wish like I definitely think Bayesian statistics are becoming a little bit more mainstream because they're computationally becoming easier like back in the day it, it was really 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 difficult but with our new advances like it's kind of like not a big reason not to do it. (laughs) No, when I took a class on like where he, where I took Professor Thomas's class before, it was like, oh, like I'm not going to do Bayesian because it's just too hard, but it seems nice in theory, but like I'm putting this off the table, which is intellectually lazy of me, but in my defense, I wasn't an undergraduate, (laughs) but I think that's a good point. And like, if it becomes computationally easier, if we have more models for how this can work, like this can be a great thing. And I know Dustin's just diving into Bayesian, right? Out of interest, am I right in saying that, I'm, Dustin? I'm trying to in all my spare time that I have as a, as a clinical psych student um, when I'm not seeing patients. <laughs> Edit none. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, that's, that's like an area that I am really interested in and I want to know more. I have like a very basic understanding of it. I haven't been able to mm-hmm. implement it in any of my studies thus far. Um, but in mm-hmm. like it needs to be taught in a, in a way that is digestible and like integrated into here's just another option that you can do. Um, and I don't think at least the first year sequences that I've been involved in or heard about other than both of yours, which sounds wonderful. Uh, that's not happening. Yeah. It's a, it's a unique program. Um, when listening to the video lectures this week, you mentioned that he's like, you know, I don't have a textbook cause no one's quite doing this. But, you know, this kind of leads into the other question of, you know, we're taking it from a stats perspective, which is important, but, um, and also thanks for going over what a registered report is, Kayla. And I think that's really helpful. A lot of people, like, I think when you're just being introduced to open science, like registered reports are the gold standard. And it's so cool that you got to start with that. But yeah, as far as stats and what we're introduced to is like, how, what are the incentives and like, how, how is it introduced to you? And like, in both of your education, educational journeys, like how have you, so cheesy, I'm sorry. Uh, just pack up all my books and I'm going to, just going to go off on my journey. Your magical educational journeys. Uh, have you, who have been your guides? No, uh, but like who have. My mage. Spiritual, yes. <laughs> anyway. Um, so yeah, so what how have like how has open science and the stats that potentially go along with it how have they been introduced to you and like what have you found along the way as like disincentives and incentives I think I so there was a I was lucky enough to take a formal class on on like open science and uh mainly on reproducibility and replication from who is, I think he's the editor of AMPS, Dan Simons and uh, Brent Roberts, who's a personality psychologist. So two bigger proponents of open science and just like walking through those, those things was really helpful in, in a more class discussion of like, what are some of the major arguments that are being made in open science with, uh, in regards to statistics, in regards to like teaching and how do we kind of trying to attack all these things from from different angles. 
I think when it comes to like my own experiences, it's been self-driven for the most part. Um, I think I've been, my advisor has been really helpful in just like allowing for that exploration and has encouraged it, but it, it does, I don't know. I, I couldn't see, I wouldn't want to do science in another way. It doesn't seem genuine, I guess. I don't know. Like that's how I've always thought of science and how it's usually taught is like, you're going to say the things that you're going to do. You're going to go do them. And then you tell everybody all of those things that you did. Like, why, why not? Yeah. It's really cool to hear you say that you had a whole class on open science. That's amazing. Like if I am so fortunate to land a job, I think it would be really cool to design a class that uh, maybe could be integrated with like, I don't know, a second level of research methods or something just to talk about scientific reproducibility, like maybe our markdown, which by the way, I'm not great at, but could do enough to teach probably an undergrad course in it. I'll guest Um, lecture. You can call me in. I'll do it. (laughs) Yes. I'm going to hold you to it. Kate has to hold me back (laughs) from talking about R too much on the pod. Oh, okay. Okay. No, no, I will give you a home for that. I will give you a platform. Um, Yeah. To just introduce even undergrads to these ideas of reproducibility and open science and, um, why they're so important um because yeah i think in terms of like formal education uh my experience has been limited to what exposures i've had with felix thomas um because it's just so baked into the stuff that he teaches and so for that i'm really fortunate that i was able to learn about open science alongside learning about statistics because the two really do dovetail in terms of like what's been difficult my biggest things i guess probably like my own, I guess, feelings of like imposter syndrome or like that I don't feel like I'm, I know enough to do this or to engage in it. And I constantly have to be very uh, overt with myself to be like, just because you're learning doesn't mean you can't do it. Or just because you don't know as much as that dude on Twitter doesn't mean like you can't play ball here too. Um, You don't have to be the best in order to participate. And so I think my mantra as I've been developing myself as an independent scholar has definitely been, you know, do your best, be transparent. Sometimes that requires admitting like, when, oh, hey, we conceptualized this wrong or we chose the wrong analytic approach. And we realized that through, you know, the course of peer review, we got great feedback saying like, yeah, this isn't what you want to do. And yeah, that might require a deviation, but tell people about it. Like just let somebody be able to tell like, follow what you did because so often in publications what we get is like an iceberg right where you have a little publication at the top and then everything that you need that's just hiding and latent and I think the best part of open science is to make that part more visible because it's not only more realistic but also more truthful it can be very it can really tell us a lot about what you're then presenting in the paper right and so I mess up along the way and Sometimes I can't foresee some of what happens in the course of doing a study, but I do my darndest to keep like a white page going of like where I'm making a deviation, what I've done, the decisions I've had to make, because I see it as my job to be more of like, let me tell you what I did. And then you can decide for yourself, like what you conclude about my work. And if you don't believe it, please replicate me. And I think that's what science is about. And I don't see it in an adversarial sense, which I think like it has gotten knocked on a lot for. 
And I think that's tied to like people being like very personal about what it is they do. And I know that it's hard not to take <laughs> people's doubt at your work, like personally. I do think that it's more of like we as a community can build ourselves. We can we can do more if we work together, right? And if there are these like this legit, if there is legitimate skepticism about something that I've done, yeah, we can. I think part of that is also going to require these like structural changes, and part of that being um, valuing a replication attempts because they tend to be undervalued, and I think that's wrong because it's a cornerstone of scientific like theory right? The, the scientific method, like your things should replicate. Um, and if they don't, that's also not saying that there's not an effect there. It's saying that there are boundary conditions to when that effect might appear. No, no. I, that, go ahead. Well, I, no, I just like the, when, like you said, replicate me, it made me think of like, <laughs> come at me. <laughs> it's like, replicate <laughs> me, do it. I dare you. Yeah. Like, well, you, like, you don't want your like you don't want to study that's not true like it's not going to help your yeah. replication <laughs> um like I I I think Dustin and I talked about this on a previous podcast like with physics like the feel thing is like they want people to replicate because of course you want your theory to be strong you want people to test it and so you can do your best work um I, I do have a quick institutional question so from my own experience um so Cornell has two notable potential problematic people as far as open science goes Obviously, um, Daryl Bem is like the leader and we have a problem here. <laughs> and then we have uh, Brian Waysank who is irredeemable, like irredeemable. Um, and so that's just terrible. Um, and so when I left, like when I came to Illinois because it's such an open science place, my uh, mentor slash our PI would make fun of me. He'd be like, eh, you're from Cornell. Like you have Daryl Bem or like you have Brian Wainsink. And to me, it was always like, a, oh shoot. Like I have this, like these two people who are really notable in this area. So like part of that was what influenced me to also push myself to be like, this isn't my value. And like, I don't think I, I would bet money that Cornell would also say that this is not their part of their value system. And so does that ever like motivate you? Or do you feel like it's something like, do you feel like it's spurred you on in any way or just you don't really thought about it? <laughs> yeah. I think sometimes it can feel a bit like a scarlet letter, right? Um, <laughs> that you're like, yes, I'm from Cornell, which like, unfortunately has a bit of a track record. And I don't know if I would identify it as a source of motivation for like my interest in just being the best researcher I can and most transparent that I can with my work. But I do sometimes think about that, like when I'm interfacing with people outside of, you know, Ithaca, it's kind of a bubble. But yeah, I don't, I, I think it's, I think it's really cool to hear that it, that it has motivated you to like be involved. For me, I think my motivation for engaging in open science is Somewhere along the way, I've convinced myself that, okay, if I am a scientist and I care about finding, figuring out like what's going on in the world, finding truths about the world, why things happen the way they do, if I actually care about that, I need to be doing things that are consistent with finding that. And A, I don't think that that can work at when we're all working very individually and keeping all of our stuff like to ourselves and keeping those icebergs hidden. Um, I definitely think that that's going to happen in a community of scientists. Um, and I think that that is, is really helped by open science. 
Um, but yeah, so, so my motivation is more about like, okay, if you, do you actually want to figure out truth about the world or do you want to get your name in papers? Like, I don't think that those things are mutually exclusive, but I do understand like prior to 2013, it was people worked in a very different way, you know, and I had mentors that grew up in that era of, oh, you know, you run these correlations and then you check the descriptive stats for outliers. You know, like, oh, who needs these four people? And you kick them out. Um, I definitely am familiar with people that have done that. And I get it. Like, you have to do something that is publishable. And unfortunately, you know, until the mid 2010s, like what was publishable are these like novel uh, or consistent findings. It was really hard to get either no results or um, inconsistent findings published. Um, and when you're in a job where like your, like your livelihood is at stake, I guess I'm empathetic to the extent that that's true. I do think that things are different now. And so although I remain a little empathetic, I think that I'm less empathetic for people that have difficulty changing with the times, you know, that this is what we're doing now. And I will say that I've definitely observed this shift toward valuing open science practices um, in the last like two, three years, especially, um, you know, like people in my like, like when I get reviews, they'll be like, oh, a major strength of this paper is that it was pre-registered or that I can access the the data on it. Um, I, I've gotten those gold stars and I don't get as much pushback as like <laughs> I used to or like have heard about for like null results. Like the whole replication that we did uh, was a paper of no results. <laughs> um, That's really cool, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I know like just like five, six, seven years ago, I would say like it would be impossible to get that published. Yeah. And uh, quick PSA, by the way, if you're submitting something for review, um, I think everyone in our lab has done it. I have yet to submit, but everyone in my former lab has done it. Um, make sure your project's unlocked so whoever has the link can actually view your project or like the, is that right, Justin? Yeah, switch it knows? to, you can either switch it to public or get view only links, which is it masks your name and everybody is affiliated with it. And it's really easy to do. Um, so yeah, do that. We had a few people who were like, oh shoot, I got my review back and they're like, hey, thumbs up on open science, but we couldn't see your project because it was like marked or it was like private, so. Yeah, yeah, the view the view only links. Um, I only discovered a couple of years ago and so it's only in my more recent papers that I've been like, oh yeah, before that I would be like OSF link redacted mm -hmm. and I'm back on those like papers. I'm like, I wasn't really helping anyone, but virtual sig virtue signaling, like what were you able, you're not able to review it. So well, I, this is a constant learning process. Like I'm not doing it because I'm an expert. I'm doing it because I'm doing my best. Well, to, yeah, to push back on your, yeah, to push back on your virtue sig signaling, like afterwards they could still see your process, like after it's published. Yes. So like you still did more than virtue signal. And it, it's not like you <laughs> I guess just threw it up there after it was published. It's like, these are time stamped. You can clearly see when everything was happening, which mm -hmm. is one of the other great things. Um, I think mm -hmm. that like the other piece when you're talking about finding truths or like understanding accurate knowledge about the world that we live in and the people we interact with, uh, it's also a way to, to communicate these things with other people and I see it also, and one of the things that I really love about the open science movement 
is showing how like I guess the entry point for engaging with science is accessible and that if you are very clear about your process that anybody could do that same thing and I think mm -hmm. a lot of times with these like the novel studies that you're seeing or that you're talking about that it's like oh my gosh how did they ever come up with that like they had to be insanely smart um when they may have just been capitalizing on a forking path just because of the virtue of that um so i think it, it just shows like this we are we prioritize knowledge and understanding and accessibility and being able to to have those steps and promote anybody who wants to have these ideas that here's the way that you can do that and that's i think another like I see that as a pretty central point to not only like being transparent and open, but also like, Hey, you can do this. And here are some supports to do that. I also like, uh, maybe because I was talking to Arias about data cleaning this morning, it was just occurring to me, but uh, open science creates like open science all the way down. Um, turtles all the way like down. Turtles. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know you love that phrase. I don't know why. Uh, I, don't... I think it was growing up in, in New Mexico, we had a pretty strong Native American culture. And so these stories of like the creation of the earth and turtles and like all these things were were very apparent. So maybe that's why. We had it in kindergarten, I think where I grew up though, since we live on stolen land, um, we talked about that a lot. And so the turtle story, I never heard the turtles all the way down until adulthood though. So I always thought it was just floating on the water. Um, it, it's a book, right? It's a book. It's like the oh, there's also a book by Hank Green called Turtles All the Way Down. That's yeah. right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what yeah. I'm uh, yeah. Um, but anyway, so open science all the way down. Um, which is I when I was talking about data cleaning, I with these RAs, I was walking them through it and I wanted to like on the fly, I was thinking while I was talking, per usual, sometimes that ends badly, but Today it did not, because um, I was trying to convince them that like data cleaning, although boring, is important. And so I was like, "Well, here's the thing with data cleaning is like you want to like mark every single step along the way, and it matters because if you like if you mess up, then you're gonna have to retract. Sometimes like if the data cleaning is really flawed, then you're gonna have to retract a paper because it might reverse the findings." And then I was showing them about how I tracked every single step. And I was like, it's just really important that you know how you got from point A to point B. And I was like, I really like talk and think in open science, even down to data cleaning, which I really appreciate. Because um, you shouldn't just ever like delete someone without a reason, right? Like, obvious, that's obvious. And yet, like, then you see people being like, well, they're a little out. Let's just Windsorize that bad boy and see what happens. Uh, and that's or bad participant, I don't mean to gender it. Um, but anyway, um, it just, I think for me, and I'm still in the very beginning stages of it, is open science has given me a little bit of a clarity in how to move forward with things. And I'm still kind of, still feeling it out and still, um, I'm gonna set up a, a, a project on OSS probably in the next couple weeks, which is exciting. Yeah. I, know. <laughs> I may have some questions for you, Kaylin with this project, it's just really great because I'm so excited to implement all of these things and I'm energized and it's my first project. So it's like, I've got the energy, but like, here's my question to you guys. How do I sustain it? 
Yeah, I think my my best advice for somebody that's just starting out with open science is just don't be afraid to specify what it is that you're doing based on what you know now. Um, so because like, again, you can always like I always have a deviation document. So, for example, in a recent study that we did, um, I proposed removing outliers based on like 2.5 times the intercortal range on a criteria on the variable. We collect the data and it was like really skewed. And so when we use that, it like dumped half the people. And so we're like, clearly we cannot do that. And so there's just some things you're not going to know until you actually get in there, until you actually get the data. And again, just be transparent, keep a record. Like, so what I do is like, I have all my folders and stuff for like a study. And then I have one folder called OSF. And in there, I have like a deviation document. I have the data. I have my R script. Um, I might have other supplemental materials, but that deviation document is always number one. And I'm always updating it as like, it's like, it's like R and then like I have the deviation open in like another window just because you need to be doing it while you're doing it. Because if you don't do it while you're doing it, you will forget. I think like I'll remember it is the worst lie I tell myself because it never happens down. It'll never get documented and you need to be documenting it. Um, but I think just practicing some self-compassion and being like, it's okay if like things if I can't work with what I specified, because I don't have ESP, despite what Daryl Ben said. <laughs> but Kathleen's on mute. She's laughing at that. She is. <laughs> I can confirm. <laughs> I always love a good Daryl Ben joke. Daryl Ben <laughs> joke. Um, but yeah, you uh, sometimes you just can't foresee all the all the things that you're going to be able to do. And again, just be transparent. Short of being able to stick like to a T what you said you were going to do, which you should try to do when you can we also have to recognize that there are these situations where like maybe what you said before isn't going to be the best thing for the data maybe you're asking you're maybe you're using the wrong statistical test and you just don't know better until you like do get it out for a review that's like actually a good advantage of peer review right so i think like being compassionate and being okay with that uh again do your best just keep um no one's going to chop off your fingers because you wanted to use this other like analysis because that's the first thing you named, even though it's wrong. Like, again, it's about finding truths. And so like, if you learn later on, like we're all relatively new in this field and having a PhD or doing research, you sign on to be a lifelong learner. So you have to accept the fact that you don't know everything right now and you don't know as much as you'll know in six months. And that happens. And so I think that that's okay. Actually, I really love that because it also is mimicking the scientific process, right? Like, it's like you, you discover things along the way and then that study then becomes your Bayesian prior for like, okay, I learned that this is the analysis you should do. Then you apply that knowledge that you have to your next project if it's in the same area and being like, okay, now I know that this is the right way to do it. And then you do that project with the knowledge you built on, but you've also done it in an open way. Um, I still think I have this like lingering anxiety of like, what if I screw up along the way? And then I have to tell everyone like I was way off base. Um, that's, that's the point, right? Like, right. It's really, scary. <laughs> it's really scary. I know. And I like deeply feel that, but, but I do think it is for a greater good, especially like, no, it's good to, it's really good to acknowledge the like fear involved. Cause I still think I operate from a fearful basis in a lot of things. So why should open science be any different? <laughs> it's really, um, you're putting yourself in a vulnerable 
place of like, here is every single thing that I'm doing and this is why I'm doing it. And that invites more opportunities for criticism, but also for praise that you're able to, to explain and communicate these things really effectively is, is essential. Here's my question to you guys then. Okay. Um, so next steps, like you're applying to jobs, you're applying to internship, you're applying for these next phases of your life. Do you feel like you market yourself as an open scientist? Like how much do you communicate professionally your open science? I feel like I know the answer is sort of for you, Dustin, but I want to hear it from you. Um, and like, yeah, I think, yeah, you know, I've talked about this, but no one else on the podcast kn- or listening to the podcast knows, but I'm just really interested in like to what degree or does this limit your search ever when you're looking for next? When I was applying to grad programs, it was kind of, a, it was this sub, I really wanted to get into grad school, but I think I asked people like, I'm, I'm 90% sure I'd have to look back. I probably should have taken better notes in the process, but um, I think I asked most people like what their thoughts were on open science. And if I didn't ask the PI directly, I asked one of their students um, because it was something that, you know, I had the benefit of being in a lab for two years that really cared about open science. I had the benefit of having Justin as a mentor to tell me to care about open science. Um, but yeah, tell me about your own thoughts and experiences with that. Yeah, that's so awesome that you were able to articulate that in the search for grad school. Like I got to Cornell, I was like, open science, what? So um, I think that it's really great that you were, you had the wherewithal to ask those questions. And I think that that is important. I think it's more important now than it was in 2000, I guess it would be early 2015, late 2014 when I was applying. Um, for me, so I'm at the point in my career where I am applying for jobs, right? And for me, in my applications, I do make it a point to say that my research is supported by these values and reproducibility with this, you know, eagerness to improve psychological science. And so I use these practices. But given that you have such like a short little space to talk about your research, um, you know, I have to put that up front. I just say, like, this is what I do. And it's supported by these firsthand clinical experiences, by a strong quantitative skill set you know, valuing open science and reproducibility, yada, yada, yada. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I do it as more of like a, a supportive piece, but I'm definitely hitting those notes in all my application materials. And one thing that I will say is that it does not limit me at all um, in terms of the search. And I have seen even in some like job postings, I know like most of your listeners aren't worried about that yet, but there are some job postings I've seen that have said like under candidate qualifications or preferred qualifications, it'll say um, interest and experience with like our open science reproducible reproducibility practices preferred. And so like, if I see that, you know, I, well, I guess like the, the line saying that like I have an interest in open science is in my cover letter, but like, I might talk a little bit more about that if, if they're explicit about saying that they prefer that. Um, but yeah, given, given like the limits that you have to work with, like you'll have three pages to describe your research. And so, um, you got to work with it within that. Um, or I might drop like several times throughout the paper be like, uh, so I study, um, how identity purpose and meaning are related to functioning and well-being, and be like, I led a pre-registered attempt to investigate X, Y, and Z. And then the next line, and then I, you know, let a pre-register endeavor to say X, Y, and Z. So I'm always dropping like when something's pre-registered. So yeah, you got to like work it in there wherever you can. 
that's helpful. I had seen on Twitter, like the Twitter verse was like, yeah, I've seen job postings, but like Twitter is not representative real life. So it's good to see that it bears out in like your actual applications. Yeah, I think with with internship, uh, it's mainly clinical stuff. And uh, so not a whole lot of opportunity there. I think when it comes to the the like job process and, and thinking about applying eventually, that that would be something I'd like to highlight as much as possible. Uh, just because I, I don't know how I would feel in an environment that doesn't promote open science or isn't comfortable. On the other hand, you'd be needed in that environment. It'd be hard for you. <laughs> oh, everyone would hate me. You should be like, you should make new enemies by being like, you're all Daryl them to me. <laughs> you're all them to me instead of you're all dead to you're me. You're all dead to me. Yeah, that's what I, I like it. Um, I have a, a fun other thing in the podcast is like, I have a list of enemies, academic enemies I've made. Like, um, I'm never going to work in, uh, what's his name again? I always forget it. Stanford prison experiment guys. Zimbardo. Uh, Zimbardo. Zimbardo. Yeah. Zimbardo is my enemy. And so I've ruined any professional opportunities I have with Philip Zimbardo, but I'm okay about being open about, I'm open about that scientific hatred. Uh, I'm sure he loses sleep over it. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> We should start an, an OSF page that just documents your your hatred. Enemies. I'd have to enemies. go back because like it's up to like four <laughs> or five now. But like Daryl Bem is the weirdest. I actually saw him lecture. He's just the most fascinating person outside of his uh, launching the open science did, the face that launched a thousand open science ships. I've never seen him talk. Um, I did once pass uh, Brian Wansink in the quad. <gasps> Whoa. The drama. drama. <laughs> I yeah, I actually think in undergrad a lot of his like work was up on posters and one of the um <laughs> in one of the we've got a cat here. Um which quick side note, I had there was a literal cat fight just outside of my view earlier today while I was talking to the RAs and I was like, I'm really sorry. You're gonna hear some hissing and some crying in the background. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. and I yeah. She's just no, that's okay. very forward about what she wants, and sometimes she sit with me, and it doesn't. Can you imagine if I was like doing a job talk? I'd be like, "You gotta take the cat out of the house." <laughs> I used to have a uh, my boyfriend would babysit my cat while uh, I was interviewing, and my like pre. I got to do, obviously got to do in person interviews before everything went down. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, my pre interviews, I would be like, "I'm taking the cat over to your apartment because I can't." <laughs> <laughs> Or I'd feed him because he just like is like he's drugged right after he eats. Um, but yeah, um, but you know, I just think about how you're in such a vulnerable position um, when you're applying to things, and hopefully, like you become less vulnerable as you get through, become like navigate and get through certain career milestones. Obviously, tenure is one of those. Um, but I felt like even more so, like that I was okay with saying in my papers and you know I think a lot of the attitudes like are like yeah do it if you want I don't really care I don't I'm not personally like personally like I'm not for it um it was important to me that whoever I worked with like was okay with it um and so it it did feel a little bit until I realized every the attitude tended to be kind of like it wasn't anti anymore in the same way and the people that I came across which hopefully 
probably not global, but um, in the first few interviews, I was like, yeah, I'm just going to bring it up just to say it's important and feel it out. And then I was like, no one really cares. <laughs> um, when it actually gets enacted, though, I feel like, you know, it depends on how people feel like it potentially limits them. But uh, have you talked to anyone, either of you, have you talked to anyone who have like have limits to it or have talked about like any pushback in your personal things? I don't know if I've ever, if I've encountered a lot of pushback, I've encountered a lot of, I don't know what that is. So like in a review, I would say like the study was created during an open science framework and here's a link. And I did get a review once where it's just like, I don't understand what this means. And I was like, I'm not, it's not my job to explain it. So I like linked them to like an open science review article from 2017, which is like, here, you can read more. Um, <laughs> it's like, I'm writing a brief report. I can't say anything more than it was pre-registered. Like, please read elsewhere. Um, I don't think I've ever encountered hostility. I've definitely read papers and I know that it exists and I've seen it on Twitter. But for me personally, you know, I am a lot more okay with somebody that's lukewarm that's like, I don't really care about this. Just don't stand in my way. And I'm perfectly happy to work with you. As long as you're okay going along for this ride and, you know, then I'm not worried about it. I'll take you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, you don't have to be. Drag you around. Yeah. I yeah. would paddle. <laughs> you don't have I was thinking of paddling a ship yourself. <laughs> you don't have to paddle. It. Just stick your. The open science canoe. <laughs> yeah. Just all, my own. Um so I don't have any personal experience with, with pushback, but I have seen it. I know it exists. Um, I've never had someone say like, you shouldn't do that. Uh, I guess this would be the opposite of pushback against open science. I have gotten reviews where people have like dinged me because they were like, oh, this finding, you know, you've seen positive effects over here and negative effects over there. And like, it's just not consistent. And I'm like, you're right. It's not. That's why I'm proposing a study to investigate those contours. Like, this is why it's the body of literature and not the. And it's just like, and you know, goodness, like sometimes life is a little bit more complex than like, this is always positively associated with depressive symptoms or whatever. Um, we can have complexity in our research. We can have complexity. And so I think that was more of like, a, this is a, a little bit of a tangent. We got a little derailed, if you will. But um, um, I think that's the second time <laughs> I made that joke with this group. Uh... <laughs> but, but yeah, I don't think it's so much a ding against open science as it is like, sometimes I think a lot of pushback on open science comes from the same world where like, we need to have consistency in our findings lives, um, where when it was difficult to publish either no results or um, contrary to, results that were contrary to like theory or fiction. File drawer. Things that yeah. historically get filed toward. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's the most overt thing I've experienced. What about you, Dustin? I think I've just like heard it from other people and like not directly within my work uh, because I just assert dominance and make sure that everyone <laughs> follows what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, when people think about Dustin Herod and they're like, <laughs> watch out. It's always asserting dominance. <laughs> yep. yep. Uh, no, I, I, because everyone that I, I've worked with has like mainly been in in my lab and has the same kind of view for open science. Um, there are other like colleagues who I've, I've heard of just like getting a little bit more pushback on like, well, why, why would we do this? And even not like being negative about it, but kind of being negative about it in like, I don't see the point in this. So why should we do it? Um, and for some reason, 
in my brain always like MRI studies and fMRI studies come to mind and all neuroscience, which I hot take, not a fan. <laughs> if you're in neuroscience and from Texas, one of our major listening groups, disregard it. I disavow anything Justin says. Yeah, no, I think I, Justin and I are a little skeptical about neuroscience research in that it has some of the very clear flaws that we see and how that open science seeks to address. Yeah. Is that okay for me? Is, am I properly? Okay. I'm smoothing it over. I'm smoothing it over. <laughs> Neuroscience. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And again, better. like it is a, it is a very, it's an expensive thing to do run fMRI studies and, and have people in the scanner to do those things. So I, I get that. And there are some other uh, like things that are being done with combining data sets and with like the ABC I think it's the ABC. I don't know. We're none of us are neuroscientists. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I can name the four areas of the brain, and I have a PhD, and that's like the limit. Oh, plus the amygdala. That's it. We're done. Kate's counting. I don't. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Prefrontal cortex, parietal lobe, occipital lobe. Temporal. How many are there? Four. Temporal. Temporal. Oh, of course. Of course. It's, those are, yeah. Okay. That's, that's the four. And then we have Mingala. The brain stem. <laughs> Just in here. It's in here. Well, not like it. here. It's like, here, like yeah. in. It's in the middle. You don't have to know yeah. brain structure to be a psychologist. Oh, my uh, You also don't have to study psychopathology to be a psychologist, too. We'll say that. Yes. I think that's important. I did not. Yeah. My, my, when I was going into. Yeah, my, my advisor is a developmental psychologist and he gets asked all the time, like, or gets told about his problems. And he's like, no, this is not what I do. I know nothing about this. My absolutely beloved uncle, who I enjoy so much the other day was like, uh, he's like, I just wanted to say, like, I'm really excited for you to like your grad school journey. Like we need more clinicians. And like, I think it's so great because he like works in insurance. He's like, we need more mental health care providers. I was like, I agree. However, <laughs> I will not be one of them. And then like, he was just so kind. Like he was, he was like, oh, like, just tell me what you're doing. And then he was really excited about that. But I was like, oh no. And like my grandmother's confused. It's okay. <laughs> so, so I have, I have a question. Is, is it weird if I ask a question of, of the pod? No, no, do it, please. Okay. So kind of relevant to this discussion of pushback and there being changing views, um, this is obviously like not, you know, a hard and fast rule, but I feel like in my experience, I've seen the greatest pushback coming from, you know, people that might be closer to the end of their careers, like tenured individuals, people that have a lot of publications, like very eminent peoples, I, I feel like have at least been the most vocal about it. And so as emerging scientists, how do we navigate this world where people like that in these positions of power have these either negative or at best neutral views towards open science and use those views to judge our applications and our publications and our level of productivity and our grant applications? You can't use the same metrics, right? Because like an open science paper is going to be a lot more complex, a lot more convoluted. There might be these no results. Um, the story may not be as pretty, even though that might be more representative. Um, but sometimes that could get dinged in some circles, right? So how are we, how do we, I, I don't know if fight's the right word, but what do you think 
the next generation needs to do to like play by the old school rules, but still flourish and get into those positions of power. Yeah. Are are you kind of thinking about like maybe like H index stuff, like um, as like one of those, like just not just like a facet of it? Yeah. Well, that would definitely be a facet of it. Um, Or like getting into like the highest impact journals, um, things like that. Um, Cause I definitely know that those are still metrics that we go by, but I just mean like, you know, somebody picks up your CV and you see like somebody with three really good open science longitudinal or experimental work, like whatever, it's three high quality open science pieces versus somebody with a lot that's not participating in open science. Um, there are people I still hear about being that will judge CVs by quantity over quality. And it's difficult to play like the game while trying to play the new rules. <laughs> Maybe I have like too much of an optimistic kind of thinking in this, but I kind of feel like our generation, our next generation of like scientists, I'm in a bubble. And so like, I feel like you know, like grain of salt, like it, the open science really has not hit medicine. And that was a big like experience for me and being in the metal briefly in the medical world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like there's like this Overton window shift that can happen with this next generation of being like, you, you don't open science. Um, and hopefully everyone will sound like that. <laughs> um, but I also think there's a little bit of a, one thing I think is in like changing the culture and we can kind of, this is a little bit of a like sidetrack, which is, but I think open science suffers a little bit because it's a little bro culture right now. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way that we talk about like stats being that way and coding and um, that sometimes those things are intertwined. And so it feels very like male dominated and a particular type of person. And, you know, I love James Heathers. I love Dan Quintana. So I'm not coming for them. I like them. Um, but there's a, way you need to do it to open the door for other people where it's not like I'm whacking you on the nose with a newspaper but like a, I'm inviting you to come in and like do science better and I think both of you have like demonstrated that attitude for me and modeling it for me and so I plan to do that for all of the undergraduate level I think it's also like it really needs to be an undergraduate level kind of thing where you learn it so it's what you learn but I think maybe developing a new measure of like, uh, you know, like H index is problematic. So like there are problems with that, but like a, something to correspond with that, which is your open science metric. How how open science is this person? And it can be kind of a, a trust metric, maybe something we could look at in the future. Um, but it would take a really long time to implement it, right? Because like there are people who like, you don't want to implement it right away and then have people suffer as they get on the train mm-hmm. um, or people who to implement open science badly because they're just box checking. Mm-hmm. Um, but Justin, like, what are your thoughts on this? You've been thinking about it for longer than I have. I, I have, and it's something that is like, it, it's around like three thirty here. So my dog thinks it's time to eat. So you might hear him barking in the back. Um, this is the Animal Channel of what is, is it? The Animal Channel. Animal Planet. Animal Planet. Yeah. <laughs> animal Channel. It sounds animal- a lot better. Cham- Chaminal, animal, chanimal would be a better name for it. I'm sorry. Or the, the chanimal, just done. Chanimal. You don't need two. <laughs> right there. Especially because I can't say the two. Yeah. Dustin, just talk to save me from myself. <laughs> I think this, this like idea of how we value science and where are we putting these, like, how are we valuing our scientists then 
is one of the the difficulties that I've had within clinical psych in particular, just because a lot of it is uh, that older generation, it feels like, and this is how it has to be done. And if you don't do it this way, then you can't advance. And it, again, kind of getting back to what I had brought up earlier of wanting to make sure that you have that open science as a way of communicating and showing, promoting accessibility. And I think if it is this, you have five publications that are first authored versus somebody else who has three, um, that the person with five is going to be seen more highly, but the three that, that this other person has might be very impactful, like you're saying. And um, I think it's, it's going to be a lot of like the younger generation infiltrating, it, it feels like, of, of getting in and, and pushing back a little bit on these metrics. And I think those discussions are being had, um, but I'm not sure how much it is, it is impacting the larger view of how we evaluate uh, early scientists, because it, it seems like these are coming up on Twitter that I'm seeing and like how much of that is actually being implemented then later on. And that's just like, it, it's upsetting really. Like when we're doing and promoting these views um, that it's like, no, it doesn't matter. I think the one thing that, that I've noticed or in like trying to think about papers uh, and the, the types of impact that it has on, on the literature is this new, I think it's within the last like six months, at least what I heard of it, called Sight. Uh, and it's taking like a machine learning AI perspective. They just endorsed Everything Hurts podcast. So if they want a new sponsorship, come our way. That's where I heard it. <laughs> Sight sponsor us. Once again, Zotero sponsor us. Yes, definitely Animal Zotero. Planet sponsor us. Channel. Oh. Animal. I love Zotero. This is, yeah, I'm so glad we, we should we talk about Zotero? Do we? Do we talk about Zotero at some point, or do we say right now? We can. I, I'm so just. I'm so. I my attention just wildly fluctuated in the last two minutes, where I was unable to follow a normal thread. <laughs> Dustin, keep talking. Sight is a is a metric. It is using uh, like machine learning. I think some AI stuff that is is looking into where papers are being cited and looking at the context of that citation to see, is it positively rated? Is it like neutral or is it negative? And that as a way to uh, like show a broader impact of what these papers are having on the literature. Is it just, you're citing it because you have to cite it or are you citing it and like saying positive things about it? Um, so that's an interesting thing that I think can continue to, to be implemented. Yeah, and I've also, I've never heard of cite. So that's really cool. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, I've also heard of, uh, tops journals. You guys are familiar with oh, that? What's that. So, um, it's an initiative by the open science framework where they have different ratings of different journals for like, uh, different openness practices. Um, oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. it's almost like an impact factor, but for open science. So you can see like, who's at the top of the list with like the most openness practices or like, you know, do they offer, you know, what do they offer? Things like that. 
Um, I actually really like that. Uh, Stork app gives me like an impact rating for all the journals it pulls for me. Um, do you use Stork app, Kaylin? It's like it pulls. Um, also need to, they need to sponsor us as well. <laughs> Stork app sponsor us. Uh, <laughs> so they pull like your areas of interest. You can use like keywords and then it, it does like basically what a lot of things do like Google alerts, but like for journals. Think, does, um, it, so- does it better? It doesn't matter. Yeah, I'm super for it. Um, but it'd be nice if they had something like an open source access, because sometimes I even like it'll give me the impact factor. And I look at the name of the journal and I was like, eh, it seems as the kids would say, sus, like, <laughs> I'm <not sure> about it. <laughs> I made this joke three times today already. This is, but you know, uh, so to be sensitive to everyone's time, maybe we could just kind of wrap up. I also like, I'm not sure I have the ability to continue to keep us on I you guys are keeping us on track I don't know if I keep us on track myself on track Um, you're you're derailing us I'm like derailing very quickly like I just had this this moment where my whole brain like just felt like it had just like detached and I was like my mind is like I saw like it was this like everyone has ADHD uh everyone so by the way Caitlin meant to mention it earlier our old lab thing was everyone, everyone's on the spectrum. What do you guys say? It's funnier than that. Well, no, that that's that. But then it's the other one of like, look to your oh. left, look to your right. Everyone has depression <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in grad school. That was my all time favorite lab moment. So uh, to just kind of wrap up here, um, we'll kind of, we'll talk about uh, our uh, future directions. I've forgotten how to talk. Um, it's election day when we're recording this as a reminder. Um, this will be two weeks out. So hopefully you're all okay. And we're all okay. Yeah. Isn't it weird to think like that we're recording this now, but someone listening to this, things will have happened in between. Well, so, you know, the beauty of this is I, I recently, I was trying not to tell people I had, I had a podcast because I don't want more listeners, I guess. Um, But so for quality control purposes, I was listening to our episode that we recorded right before I submitted the NSF and I said two things one which was beautifully like predictive of my own nature which I was like you know I'm feeling pretty negative about this right now but you know I usually have this thing where I after I submit something I'm always so positive and I say like so I know like at the end of this I'm gonna say blah 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 which I said literally one week later in the podcast almost to the t the exact same wording and I was like so predictable (laughs) Within person stability. I know. Love to see it. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah. So what are our future directions for next week? So the first one is to play Among Us, which I haven't played yet. um, But it's been really fun to talk about playing it. So hopefully that will happen. And then um, the second one is going for a run. Um, I The weather has gotten worse and it's been harder to motivate myself. But I know it's a very big key to my mental health game and so I'm gonna do that um for me I guess let's see my academic future goals I think would be we got a revise and resubmit decision from a great journal and so, yay. applause yay. yeah insert applause insert applause um so that's oh, great uh, but they, they do want it resubmitted as a brief report and I think that this is my best writing and so I like was quietly sobbing you know the last week cutting out like half of this paper being like oh, this word was so good this sentence was so great you know kill your darlings you what 
the like phrase for like your writing is like kill your darlings oh I've never heard that but yeah no no but (laughs) no I've never heard that um so I guess my goal is to is to wrap things up there and then in terms of my personal goals in the next week um let's see for the past few months I've been learning Japanese and so um I've been doing that in my free time and I'm getting ready to start a module on like how to ask people to do things or direct them like hey can you do this so learning that form will be my next task oh that's so cool that's such a that's such a challenging thing to take on I just wanted to do something that was very different from my day job um and I think like the culture is really cool the language is beautiful they make good music that's a great and are you so how are you learning that like what's your medium for learning it so I uh I started on like the Duolingo app um, so that was a good thing for like just getting going. And I've since expanded to like, I listened to some podcasts, um, either in Japanese or like straight up, like, you know, English to Japanese learners podcasts. Um, it's still a real struggle for me to like listen to native speaking. I'm still like not used to it. It's very fast. Um, sometimes they don't pronounce like, like vowels well. And so sometimes I'm like, I, it's difficult for me to still keep up with. So, um, getting used to those things. And then also some flashcards and things like that. I, I usually try to practice like 30 minutes every night and something good. I love your commitment to your like side hobby. That's so cool. Yeah. I like started cross-stitching last time, like last year. And I'm like halfway through projects that I'm not going to finish. Yeah, no, Dustin gave me the coolest thing. He was my secret Santa last year. Um, and so he gave me the coolest cross-stitch. Yeah, cross-stitch thing ever. So I am also a cross-stitcher. And I started like two years ago, but I made this for Felix when I- Oh, I saw when you posted that. that. That's so cool. I actually- So for for listeners, it's a a image of the open science badges and it says the the Holy Trinity. I actually might've said that to Justin. I think you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The first time I was like- Oh, wait, I think that was the first time it occurred to me that you and, like, Dustin and you and Kayla and you, you would, like, get along very well. <laughs> I was like, wait, cross-stitch plus. And then I made this when I was graduating. I don't know how well you can see it, but it's a wreath, and it says in the middle that statistics are like Catholicism. You can do whatever you want as long as you confess. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Wait. wait, I'm a former Catholic. This is so perfect for me. <laughs> Okay, I think we've reached a critical mass where I need to take up cross-stitching. I promise I'm going to do it. This is what I'm going to learn over winter break. Okay, I'm going to buy a cross-stitch kit and I'm going to I'm gonna do it. I'm going to go for it. Do it. I, I think, and when you're done, you have to show Felix and be like, look who, look who got the pattern. <laughs> this is perfect. <laughs> Maybe he'll give me bonus points on my QM class grade. There you go. That's what I you need. I did badly on my first homework. I'm still making up for it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I'm still working on uh, the Doctor Who TARDIS. It's like, it's Are you st- oh, still wow, working that on was it. super judged. <laughs> no, it is. I know. Cross-stitching is fantastic. It's very meditative. Um, yes. So I, I highly recommend. I culturally love it. I, I just like culturally love that there's this like, new generation that's suddenly like, I'm going to cross-stitch and I'm going to cross-stitch like, fuck this on like a cute, like embroidered, like just like beautiful. Yeah. You got to follow cross-stitch coven on Instagram. I love everything Good. that they do. Yeah. The the last thing I did was a little bit more snarky and you won't be able to see it, but 
It's a betta fish. <gasps> betta fish. Oh, sorry. What does it, say? it says, like the betta fish, I am also beautiful and want to fight everyone. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Justin, what is your future direction other than cross-stitching the TARDIS that you're taking forever to finish? Yeah, I need to finish no that. Judgment. No, you are. It's fine. Maybe yeah. I'll, I'll do updates every week of how far I've gone. It's just, it. there's so few colors and the pattern is just very repetitive. So like you can only do so much. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just a big rectangle. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, my future directions are to continue watching The Mandalorian. It is the new season came out and the first episode was amazing. Um, so going to continue that. I have a delayed t TV recommendation, by the way. Um, is it The Boys? No, I'm sorry. I've wanted to watch it. I just haven't. It's on Prime, right? Yeah. I don't have Prime. But yeah, no, uh, really good is if you're trying to learn Spanish and you're trying to watch a Spanish soap opera to do so, or like a Spanish drama to do so. Uh, Valeria is a really funny one. Um, and it's really good. I already watched the whole first season, like minutes. I was having trouble. And so I switched to Spanish with English subtitles and just read the whole thing, which next time I'm going to do Spanish with Spanish subtitles. And I'm hoping that these things will slowly bring me to regain my lost Spanish that I lost many years ago, but hope to restore. <laughs> I like that we have, we have two spectrum, like learning languages on a spectrum too. And Kate is just going to watch TV shows while Kaylin has a, a very structured way of going about doing it. No, Actually, I'm gonna do I also watch a lot of anime. So, okay, that's fine. That's part of it. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say I feel like I want to do like the Dexter's laboratory did you guys ever watch that episode he wants to learn French so he says he'll just do it in his Omelette sleep du fromage. Omelette yeah. du fromage. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I planned to and do. the girls are like fawning over him yeah yes <laughs> we're done <laughs> all right thank you all for joining us on another episode thank you Kaylin for joining us Dr. Kaylin Ratner <laughs> has joined us um, and if you're listening to this and you're a hiring committee, hire her. She's so awesome. She's the best grad student. Uh, <laughs> or she was the best grad student. Now she's a postdoc. Thank and you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Oh, this is so great. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. The You Can Grad Door is on a vacation. <laughs>